Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, May 28th. Arden Zwelling here with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producer is Christian Ryan. Ben, I know we're living in this weird time when time itself feels like it is both crawling and moving at warp speed concurrently somehow, but I really lost track of how close we are to the 2020 MLB draft, which is June 10th, right around the corner. Uh, And that's why this here today is going to be our MLB draft episode where we talk to a couple people in the know about what might happen in the draft because it has really snuck up on us. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? Like, it's not that I forgot that a draft was going to happen, but it also seems somehow impossible that a draft could take place because it's not like there have been high school games or college games or major league games to remind us of baseball as we're used to seeing it. So really, it is just really bizarre. And obviously, front offices are at work trying to prepare their boards in new ways. And we'll hear from from Jim Callis and Shai Davidi on that. But it's just bizarre to think that we're a couple weeks out from a, a draft at a time that no one's playing baseball. Yeah, we'll uh, have Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline on just to break down some of the individuals who will be selected kind of around the fifth pick, which is the one that the Toronto Blue Jays hold in this draft. And then we'll also talk to Shai Davidi just about the Blue Jays strategy going into this draft and, and then after it as well with the young players that they select and any players that they're able to sign for $20,000 after the draft. And what happens to those players? What happens to all minor leaguers this year and how you continue to develop Young players amidst a pandemic, which is obviously a pickle that the Blue Jays are trying to work their way through right now. But, you know, Ben, with this draft, like there are so many interesting variables. Like I'm more interested in this draft than I have been in any one for some time. And a lot of that's probably because the game's not being played right now. So like it it is a good place to kind of direct some energy. But there's also like so many unique things about it. It's only going to be five rounds and teams haven't seen a lot of these players play for quite some time. And the whole thing's going to be done virtually. And the Blue Jays are picking incredibly high in the draft, which means that they are going to, you know, not only have the opportunity to select premium talent at that number five spot, but they're also going to be able to tap into a larger bonus pool than normal, which is going to allow them to if they so choose get a lot more creative with what they do but then on the other hand they're also going to be limited in that creativity because you know you only have five rounds so that that almost just like heightens the necessity of nailing these picks because one of your selections is 20 percent of your draft class so there are just like so many interesting variables ben when you look at this Exactly. And each different variable introduces a whole new set of questions. And that's why, you know, we wanted to turn to Jim and and Shai on this because they've been digging into it. Jim, of course, an entire career really devoted to prospects in the draft. He knows it as well as anybody. But you, you look at the different questions. How does a team prepare for a draft? How do players get seen in this era? How do scouts prepare? What happens to scouts after the draft? What happens to next year's draft? How do the Blue Jays prepare facing the number five pick, their highest in decades. There's so many different questions here, and it does make it more interesting. And nobody wanted this, obviously, but you know, on an almost intellectual level, it is interesting to kind of consider how teams should go about this draft, how they can be strategic about it, and you know, of course, with respect to the Blue Jays, what it means for this franchise. 
So without further ado, let's get to Jim Callis, who, as you mentioned, knows this stuff as well as anyone. He's going to be able to tell us about guys like Zach Veen and Nick Gonzalez and Emerson Hancock, who are in the Blue Jays range there around number five. He's also going to be able to tell us about how teams have been preparing for this very unique draft. And as you mentioned, scouts and what might happen after the draft and just how the, the world of amateur scouting you know, could change going forward amidst pandemic. So here now is Jim Callis. Jim Callis is a senior writer for MLB Pipeline at MLB.com. You can get him on Twitter at Jim Callis MLB. He covers the draft as well as anybody, which means this is a very busy time of year for him. So we very much appreciate him taking the time. Jim, thanks for being with us. Oh yeah, no problem at all. I, I was just saying before we got on here, it's actually, it's, it's like a brief respite because I just finished a mock draft last night. So it's like a little bit of a a calm after the storm, I can kind of catch my breath for a day or so, so which is nice. Well, yeah, it's such an interesting and unique year for the draft, right? You know, this is right around the time that we'd be hearing things like the Brewers had a heavy presence at so-and-so's high school, or the Braves are at every Texas A&M game this spring, but there's been no games, so there's no games to go to. Uh, you know, I'm just curious to hear how much of an impact that's had on your preparations for covering this draft, and I mean, what do you think the lack of a recent sample might mean for how teams are approaching it. Yeah, I mean, for, for doing mock drafts, I mean, we, there, there definitely is a uh, reading of tea leaves that like, oh, you know, Theo Epstein was spotted at so-and-so's game, and you, you know he wouldn't be there if the Cubs weren't interested, or, you know, somebody's going in to, you know, do a private workout for the Yankees. Like, you, you can read into that kind of stuff, and there's obviously none of that happening. You know, other than that, you know, it's kind of been, this will sound funny, business as usual for trying to cover the draft, because... I mean, while we do see some players, I mean, so much of it is talking to scouts who've seen a bunch of players. And while they haven't gotten recent looks at guys, I mean, teams did get a lot of looks at players last summer. You know, I, I think the average fan feels like teams are maybe flying a little blinder than they actually are because, you know, really, especially for high school players, it's most important to scout them on the showcase circuit where they're facing the best competition in the country rather than whoever they randomly have to be, you know, play during their high school season. If you're in a, you're not a, a baseball hotbed, you might not face much pro caliber competition at all. And it's hard to get a, a true read on that. Or you also have the summer college leagues that use wood bats. So I feel like teams, while it's not optimal and, you know, they would have liked another two plus months worth of looks at this year's guys, they do have a decent amount of, of information on the players. So from covering like the overall draft standpoint, it's not been too different. I mean, you know, it, it's been easier to track people down because unless they're in Zoom meetings, you know, they have more time on their hands. So it hasn't been that different for us, to be honest. That's really interesting. And it wouldn't be the way I, I would have guessed, to be honest, just because everything else in our world is so different. When you look at the draft from a strategic standpoint, there are obvious challenges as far as getting the information that teams want. And the draft is shorter with a totally different structure than what we're used to. So what do you think the strategy is? Are there any differences in strategy this year compared to what we would see in a quote unquote traditional year? I think there'll be some in that, you know, look, if you're a team that relies heavily on analytics, you aren't going to have as much track man and, and other sorts of data necessarily that you would have had otherwise. Now, that said, I mean, you're still are going to have it from the showcase circuit. You, you're still are going to have it, you know, from last summer. And, you know, a lot of schools have track man. So, I mean, the four weeks of the college season, again, you didn't get as much of it, but you'll still have some. So I think that's different. I do think with five rounds instead of 40 and, and the bonus pool extending only five rounds instead of 10, 
It's not going to be as easy to move money around to, you know, overpay guys, you know, more than the recommended bonus allotment for each individual pick. I mean, you're still limited to the pool. The pools are going to be about a million dollars less on average than they would be for teams if they had the round six to 10 to deal with. I'll be very surprised if we see the old... You know, the Blue Jays did this more than anybody, I think, the first year of the draft when they went big big early in the draft where you take college seniors in around 6 or 10 and, and sign them for $5,000. I, I don't think we're going to see college seniors getting signed for $5,000 in a five-round draft. But all that said, I do think the five rounds will look fairly similar to what the five rounds would have looked like in a normal year with 40 rounds. I want to say, if I remember this correctly, I looked this up. I think there were 40 high school players who got $600,000 or more in the in the first five rounds last year. And, you know, I don't know if we'll see quite as many this year. The depth of this draft is very heavy on the college side. The high school class is probably average to, you know, maybe a little above average. But the college crop, if, if we were using the 20 to 80 scouting scale, would, would be a 60. It's a, it's a plus college crop, especially on the pitching side. So you may see a few more college guys taken. But I think that's a reflection of the talent rather than everybody getting conservative. I, I still think you'll see a number of high school guys get paid in the first five rounds. And, you know, the, the change because the bonus pools are, are, are smaller for teams and it's not as easy to move money around with only five picks for most clubs. You know, maybe... Your high school kid who got $2 million like last year, you know, maybe he gets 1.5 this year, but I, I don't think we're going to see anything drastic like, you know, I, I've seen people speculate, oh, it's going to be hard to sign high school players. I still think the best high school players are, are, are going to get paid. I, I don't think it's going to be a scenario where maybe, you know, five or 10 high school players go in the first round and then nobody takes high school players. I, I do think you'll have some teams that might be a little bit more conservative this year. You know, it, it's tough, especially in the high school pitching when you didn't get to see how guys held up or, or how some of the projectable guys developed. But I, I do think the first five rounds of this year's draft will look quite similar to, to the first five rounds of last year's draft. I almost wonder if, you know, and I think you're right, that if this year's draft looks quite similar to what it has in the past, I almost wonder if we're going to feel kind of the impact and the fallout of everything that's going on right now in next year's draft. And the one after that, you know, you mentioned how important, you know, the showcase circuit is and summer leagues. Well, who knows if we're going to have those this year. And so teams aren't going to have eyes on players for next year's draft. And with only five rounds this year, you have to think there would be a flood of players who would end up moving into next year's draft, whether they go to junior college for a season or something like that. So there could actually be a bigger pool. And as it stands today, like, I'm not sure we even know how many rounds that draft will be. So you think that actually we might see a bigger impact of covid and what's going on in 2021 yeah i think it's definitely true of a couple of reasons one like you said and i've talked to this you know i, I think what i do like a lot of radio shows i, I get fans ask or the host asking you know, like oh how are these teams drafting and it's like i told you guys you know the teams actually have a good amount of looks and data not as many as they'd like but you know good amount of looks and i, and I keep saying like next year's gonna be the year it's crazy and i know they're not all shut down and there are some showcases scheduled We'll see. I mean, I, I just don't know how easy it's going to be to pull those off. But if we have a summer, I would tend to think we're not going to have many showcases or summer leagues, or even if teams are going to be allowed to scout them, or if the teams are furloughing scouts like they've already started doing, some teams have, they're not going to have scouts at these events or, or their usual contingent of scouts. Yes, I mean, it's possible that you could go into next season with almost no real looks at players and have to do everything next spring. And then, I mean, if you want to think even more drastically, you could have a situation where, you know, let's say college football in the United States, 
isn't at a point in the fall where you can have fans in the stands or the normal amount of fans in the stands. I mean, I went to a school at Georgia where, we, where our football stadium holds 90,000 people. And it seems hard to imagine a Georgia football game with 90,000 people in the stands right now. But like, so if that happens, then you're going to have revenues way down. You might have programs suspending spring sports, dropping sports. We've already had a couple U.S. universities drop baseball since the coronavirus shut things down. And, you know, what if the college baseball season isn't anything like what we're used to? What if there's only a few teams that are playing or, or you, know, you know, a small percentage compared to, you know, the 300 or so that play at the Division One level? So you have that going on. And then the other issue is going to be the draft is going to be glutted. They, they've already agreed as part of the agreement with MLB that they now – don't agree on what they agreed on about salaries. Next year's draft has, has been cut to 20 rounds. I'd suggest that if, if I had to bet, I almost bet it'll be less than 20. You had owners didn't want to have a draft this year. The union basically said, no, you have to have a draft. As long as you do five rounds, you can totally screw the players however you want. And that there's going to be many things that they negotiate about that matter more to both sides in the draft. And I think you're going to have the owners. It's not going to surprise me all if the owners say, look, the revenues were down so much in 2020, we don't want to have a 20-round draft. We want to have a 10-round draft. And I don't think the union's going to stand their way. But even if it's 20, let's assume it's 20, I do think you're going to have some players. You know, one of the worst parts about the new draft rules is anybody who doesn't get drafted can only sign for $20,000. There's no wiggle room. You can't save money in your bonus pool and give it to undrafted players. You know, in a normal year, you'd have slots ranging from about 300000 to 150000 for rounds 6 through 10. And then... After the 10th round, you could sign players for 125000 without accounting against your pool. And if you had money in your bonus pool saved, you could pay more than that to players. You, know, you had a couple high school guys who got over $750,000 after the 10th round last year because it fit in the pool. Now you can only sign guys for twenty. And I looked this up, and last year there were 395 players who got six-figure bonuses after the fifth round. And these guys aren't going out and, and buying sports cars and new suits and, and gold chains. Like, these guys who are signing for typically $100,000, $125,000. They're paying off college loans because almost no player is on a full scholarship for baseball. And you're using that money because minor leaguers are criminally underpaid. You're using that money to live off of, to try to eat healthy, to try to train when you're getting paid next to nothing for five months out of the year and you're not even getting paid the other seven months. So those bonuses actually matter to those players. And I do think that some of those guys will sign. But if a lot of those guys head back, you're going to have all the guys who, or, or a lot of guys who would have gone around six through 20 this year and signed going back into next year's draft with the guys who would have gone in round six through 20 anyway. Well, the math tells you that, you know, if they all go back, well, only half of them can go in six to 20 because you're going to have twice as many players. And you're going to have, when players do go back to school, you're going to have scholarship crunches at a lot of schools and you're going to have incoming freshmen who all of a sudden there's not scholarship room or playing time for them who go to junior college. And those guys are going to be draft eligible too. So you, you, even if it's a 20 round draft, and like I said, I actually, I would bet the under, but let's say we have a 20 round draft. You're going to have, you know, probably more than twice as many players worthy of going in round six or 20 as you would have in a normal year. And the math tells you only half of them can get drafted. And we're going to have, you know, fewer minor league teams, it looks like next year. So there's going to be fewer places for, for players to play. So it stinks because I, I'm on my soapbox here now, but like you're going to have guys who turn down $20,000 this year who go back to school and they're going to be 22 next year. And pro teams don't generally value 22-year-old college players very highly. That A lot of those guys aren't even going to get drafted next year. And you're going to have a lot of freshmen, incoming freshmen, who are going to find out in August after the signing deadline, 
all of a sudden, hey, my school had three or four juniors come back they weren't counting on, and now I don't have a scholarship and, and I can't play, so where am I going to go? So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of broken hearts with this draft, and, and it's going to be worse next year, I think. Man, there's so much trickle down. It's actually crazy. And and the more you talk about all of these aftershocks that are coming, it, it really becomes easier to imagine a world next year where we're still feeling the effects of all these changes. And I guess one of those changes would be on the scouting side. I mean, as you mentioned, there are already some organizations that have started furloughing scouts. I'm sure it's an uncertain time for those in the scouting industry in any way. What's your sense of how all of this will impact scouting and how scouting looks going forward? It's a negative. I mean, scouting, <laughs> I've had discussions with scouts and even before the coronavirus, like where we kind of like morbidly joke, like what's the worst industry, scouting or sports writing right now? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> and we, we all knowingly laugh there. I mean, you look, I mean, you already have teams that are, you know, looking to reduce money and cut back on scouts. I mean, that's already, you have some teams talking about doing that. I mean, the Astros have done that, I think, to a greater extreme than anyone. And I mean, I know like if you're a professional scout, well, there might not be any minor leagues. I mean, I don't think there's going to be any minor leagues this year. So what are those guys going to do? You know, like some of that's moving to video anyway. From an amateur scouting side, you know, some of the analytics-based teams are relying heavily on analytics and and video. And, and obviously there's a lot of scouting done on video this year. And, and you're going to have teams, obviously the revenues are, are going to be way down this year. And the revenues are probably going to be down next year. And you're going to have fewer minor league teams. And you're going to have a reduced draft of five rounds this year. No more than 20 rounds next year. And I'm going to guess going forward with fewer teams, we probably aren't going to have more than a 20-round draft in the next CBA. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I understand times are tough. Nobody wants to get furloughed. I'm not saying anybody should get furloughed. But if you're going to make a decision to furlough your scouts, how cynical do you have to be if you're Artie Moreno of the Angels, who's worth billions of dollars and his franchise is worth billions of dollars, to furlough your scouts before the draft? Like, that's unbelievable to me. And hey, our cross-checkers, our cross-checkers who, for fans who are listening, if they don't know, are like kind of your supervisory scouts who go in and, and cross-check players that the area scouts like. You guys are good until June 16th. We'll keep you guys. I mean, that's single. I mean, the A's are furloughing their scouts. There's other teams too. But I think there's a fear from most of the scouts I talk to in the industry that after the draft's over, especially if there aren't showcases in summer leagues, that a lot of the amateur scouts are going to get furloughed. And, and from a pro scouting standpoint, it's scary too because there's nothing to scout right now. There's no minor leagues. It's a very minor consideration. But, you know, usually those guys are out, you know, would have been out now for, you know, already six weeks, you know, seeing players to gear up for the summer trade season. We don't even know, like, <laughs> is there going to be a season? Are there going to be trades? So, like, the pro scouts don't have anything to do either. And I just think there's a great fear that they're going to get furloughed. And I know from, you know, talking to a, a scout who did get furloughed, you know, his team told him, we hope this changes after you know, they're furloughed through October. We hope this changes, but we can't guarantee you that your job is going to exist after October. So, like, you can't stick around. And, I mean, already you've had more teams cutting scouts than adding scouts, and I think this is just going to add to it. And, I mean, this is an oversimplification. I think you could have some owners who obviously are, are having a bad revenue year say, why am I paying these guys? There isn't that much for them to do. Let's cut our staff in half next year. If we had X number of scouts for a 40-round draft, let's cut it in half for a 20-round draft. And if there's fewer minor league teams – we don't need as many pro scouts because there aren't as many players to cover. It's a really scary time, and I think it's going to give financial justification to teams to just reduce scouting staffs. You know, I don't think it'll necessarily be every team. And 
Again, to me, I, I've always thought, I mean, obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of scouts. I talk to a lot of them. I value their opinions. But, I mean, you look at how much area they're supposed to cover, you know, just in terms of the draft, you know, but for on a typical team, I, I would hire more scouts and give them smaller areas and get them to know their areas even better. Like that to me would seem more efficient than, you know, putting 30,000 miles on their cars, driving all over the place in the spring. But I, I fear that the reverse is true. And, and I mean, nobody wants to listen to sports writers worry, but I mean, it's the same thing for us. Like if there's no season this year, like I do more prospect stuff, but I mean, as of right now, I don't know what I'm going to be doing after the draft ends on, on June 11th. Like there's no minor leagues. Like so Our big project usually is to re-rank the farm systems. Well, nobody's played since we last ranked the farm system. So all that would entail, like if we're doing our Blue Jays list, it's like, okay, who'd the, who'd the Blue Jays pick at, at number five? They got Zach Veen. Okay, where does Zach Veen go on the top 30? You know, and you, you do that for the second and third rounder and then you're kind of done. Well, the Blue Jays have benefited so much in recent years from some of those area scouts. Like you think about Brian Johnston in, in Texas at Magnolia High School, where both Adam Kloffenstein and Jordan Groshans came out of in one draft. You think about Matt Bischoff in Florida, where they got Bo Bichette and Nate Pearson. I mean, those relationships that were built and a lot of that scouting work that was done was so valuable and so important to the Blue Jays acquiring some players that they think they're going to build their franchise on going forwards. So these are incredibly important positions, but you, you look across baseball and we have this, this massive labor dispute going on right now at the highest levels of the game, but there's all these trickle off, as Ben said, going on, you know, beneath the surface and lots of cuts that are being made. You look at the Oakland athletics, not paying minor leaguers for the rest of the season. I mean, when we're talking about minor leaguer salaries, we're talking about 300 to $500 a week. You know, we're looking at Oakland saving maybe a million dollars here, which seems like such a, a minimal savings to trade off for the bad look optically and the, you know, how that will be detrimental to the development of young players in your franchise. And it kind of, it, it seems like you're anticipating that through a lot of the labor negotiations that are going on right now, it is not only minor leaguers, but amateurs as well, who are going to end up really getting sold out in this process. It's tough. I mean, and you think, I mean, the crazy thing about the draft too is, so for the bonus pools this year, for, for five round bonus pools for the teams add up to $236 million. I know fans might be going, wow, that's a lot for draft to players, but you control these players for six years in the minors and six years in the majors, and you can grossly underpay them for their first three years in the majors and then underpay them through arbitration for three years. And if any time you don't like the player, you just cut him during this process. It's not like you're beholden to him. You know, and you look at a guy like, say, Pete Alonzo, who was a second-round pick who signed for around a million bucks. You know, Pete Alonzo goes out and hits 53 homers last year. And if you look at wins above replacement, and I think what a win, one win above replacement you know, equated to like $8 million, Pete Alonso was worth like $40 million just in production to the Mets last year, not to mention ticket sales and souvenirs and all that. And Pete Alonso thanks the Mets this spring for paying him $653,000. I mean, he's grossly underpaid. So like a lot of times, you know, like when the bonuses, people say, boy, these bonuses are crazy. It's like, yeah, but when you hit on a player, you come out so far ahead, it's insane. But anyway, so the bonus pools are $236 million. The owners are deferring. They can't even pay guys up front if they want to. You can only pay a player $100,000 up front this year with the draft. And usually draft bonuses, like the big bonuses, are split into two installments over two different tax years. But this year, 
or did, for anybody who's drafted, the max you can get up front is $100,000, and you get half of the remainder next year in July, and you get half of the remainder in July 2022. The, the owners are deferring $220 million. So, like, that's actually more than they've already paid the play, advanced the players on their salaries to this point. I mean, yes, I know these guys have cash flow problems, but it's not like the draft is costing them anything. You know, the, the typical team's going to spend $500,000 on the draft, plus however many $20,000 free agents they sign. And, and you know, these Area scouts, I mean, you know, draft-wise, one of the most important things they do is, look, I mean, you know, you've got the metrics. You can go watch guys playing games, but it's trying to get to know the player and know what makes a guy tick and what kind of person he is and what kind of work ethic he has and those types of things. And I know, you know, sometimes people will deride that a little bit, like, oh, you can't quantify makeup. You know, that's all a bunch of, you know, armchair psychology. But you talk to teams, and they place a huge value on that, you know, knowing the player. You aren't going to know the player if you don't have area scouts. You could take video and, and, and look at metrics and all that, but you aren't going to know the players unless you have boots on the ground actually talking to the players and their families and the, their coaches and, and that type of thing. And I think it's incredibly short-sighted. I hope it doesn't come to this, but I, I hope if a number of scouts do get furloughed, teams know who the best scouts are. And I hope there's like when teams fill back their stats back out, that the best scouts get paid better. You know, there's a demand for the best scouts and that guys get some money, but it's terrible. And I, and I don't understand. I'll go ahead and pick on the A's a little bit here. I mean, from a player side, the A's aren't paying their minor league players now. And I mean, I guess contractually they can do that because the season's been suspended, but that's a garbage look to me. Like, and you're, you're paying guys, what, $400 a week? like on, on a stipend right now? And these guys already make no money? And like, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, again... Maybe it's because these guys don't have a union and they have to sign owner's contracts. But if, if any of our employers stop paying us, I believe we'd be free to go look for another job with somebody who would pay us. That's amazing to me. They already don't pay these guys anything. And, and now the A's are, are not going to pay their minor leaguers at all. It's truly amazing. And it's, it's really dispiriting when you think about it. I mean, it's one thing to say, all right, you know, we're not going to go and sign Garrett Cole or Anthony Rendon. I think we can all understand that. But, you know, it's a totally different topic when you're talking about someone who's making $400 a week. I mean, the cumulative of those salaries for the 200 or so minor league players would add up to less than a million dollars for the next couple of Which they're of already deferring, and they're saving so much money on cash flow from this year's draft. Every team is that you could justify it that way, too. And again, these guys, if you're an A's minor leaguer, you're still expected to be eating healthy and training and staying in shape in case we do have a minor league season, so you're ready to go right away. But we're not going to pay you. I mean, that's unbi- – I mean, if it, I'll put it this way. If I was one of those players, I would be trying to find out what my legal options were because I, I don't understand how I, I'm beholden to still be an A when they've decided – like, they already pay me a criminally low wage, and now they're deciding they don't have to pay me. That just amazes me. Truly, yeah. And any side income that you can actually go and, and get right now has to be the type of vocation that you can just up and leave. So it's going to be something in the gig economy, whether it's you know Uber Eats or food delivery or, or what have you. And then you're actually putting yourself at risk because you're now going out into public during a pandemic and doing jobs you know, where you are kind of on the front lines of what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it's not just baseball. There's people affected all over you know, both countries and in, in, in variety of walks of life, but it's, it's just, it's a very sad state of affairs right now. 
So, Jim, we know you don't have a crystal ball on this, although I will say that in 2005, you did correctly predict the first 18 picks in the draft. That's a mark that will be tough to match or break. But when it comes to the Toronto Blue Jays, they're picking fifth overall. And, of course, we want to hear your thoughts on who might be available, on what kind of options the Jays might have making their highest pick since 1997. Yeah, so and was that was nineteen ninety seven? Was it Vernon Wells? Vernon Wells. Yes, I, I can remember stuff from twenty years ago. Baron, I can remember it from last year. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. but, um, and it was funny because, as you guys know, I mean, Vernon Wells was considered. Oh, they're going cheap. Like, what a reach, and wound up being a pretty good player. In this year's draft, I, I think there's kind of a consensus top three players in, in Arizona State first baseman Spencer Torkelson, Vanderbilt outfielder to third baseman Austin Martin, and Texas A and M lefty. Asa Lacey. And I think those guys are probably going to go in the top three picks in that order. So I don't think the Blue Jays will have a shot at them. And But other than that, I mean, you know, it looks like the Royals, I, I was thinking they were going to go college pitcher. And now it sounds like they're going to go with a bat. And, and the simple answer is, I, I think the Royals are looking at Nick Gonzalez, who's, who's a middle infielder from New Mexico State, who's one of the best hitters in the draft. And a Florida high school outfielder named Zach Veen, who's probably the best all-around offensive player in the high school class, are, are the two guys the Royals appear to be looking at. And and I think the simple analysis is they'll take one of them and the Blue Jays will take the other. If that's not the case, I, I think the Blue Jays might go. Like if they, if they decide to go to tap into this deep pool of college pitchers, I think Minnesota right-hander Max Meyer might be their guy. But as of now, I, I think it's kind of Gonzalez or Veen at five would be my guess for the Blue Jays. You mentioned those college pitchers. I mean, the name Emerson Hancock has come up a lot with the Blue Jays. Asa Lacey is, you know, looks like might go above them. But those two names were on the board when the Blue Jays come up the pick. Do you think they would consider them as well, or, or is Meyer their guy? Yeah, no, I, I think they would. I, I think they would take Asa Lacey. I, I just don't think he gets to. I mean, there's a scenario where maybe the Orioles would take Gonzalez at two and, and save a little money and, and go big later, in which case I think the Marlins would take Martin and then the Royals would take Asa Lacey, and that would leave the Blue Jays with Veen. If all the college pitchers were available, I think the Blue Jays would probably line them up. Lacey first. I think he's uh, – I'm not going to claim I've talked to all 30 teams, but I think Asa Lacey's everybody's number one pitcher in this draft. And I think the Blue Jays would take Max Meyer over Emerson Hancock is my sense. Hancock was a guy who, you know, just even coming into 2020, seemed like he was a lot higher on draft boards and, and now seems to be uh, just a little bit lower, of course, still in the top 10, which is pretty high. And you kind of you mentioned in your most recent mock that analytically minded teams don't love his pitch metrics. So I'm just kind of curious if you can expand on, you know, what you're getting at there and maybe why he's been slipping a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think he's slipping too far. I mean, you know, he was our number one prospect coming into the season. You know, he was not as sharp at the beginning of this season as he was at the beginning of last season when I think he was the best pitcher in college baseball for, for the first half of last year. But I've also had teams that, that almost kind of dismissed that and said, that, you know, that, that Georgia's schedule was a little bit light early going into before SEC play began and that, that Hancock was kind of treating those lesser teams almost like spring training and working on some things while on the mound as opposed to just attacking, you know, with his best stuff. And, and unfortunately, we never got to see SEC play. They were, they were going to play number one Florida right after the, the coronavirus shut down the college season. But, yeah, you know, I mean, it's the way teams look at pitchers is a lot different these days. It's not just, okay, you know, here's the radar gun, and the guy's throwing 94. Okay, well, you know, 94 equates to, you know, 55 velocity, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, now you're looking at, 
spin rate and horizontal and vertical movement and you know the shape that, that creates on the fastball and I've heard it from a couple sources that those teams that really put a lot of weight into take the deep dive into the pitching metrics aren't as enamored of him. I mean, I've, I've had teams outside the top 10 asking me, do you think he can get to us? We're hearing he's falling. I don't think he can really get that far. I, I had him going six to the Mariners. I mean, if the Blue Jays took him over Max Meyer, that wouldn't surprise me. But I've just heard Max Meyer with the Blue Jays more than I've heard Emerson Hancock. The Blue Jays have, under Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins, been a team that's gone pretty college-heavy with the first overall pick. When you you know you think about TJ Zoic and Logan Warmoth, Alec Manoa, I mean, Jordan Groshans would be the one departure there, and Zach Veen would be as well if they ended up taking him, a high school outfielder. Is there a, a bit of a philosophical shift there, do you think, with, with the organization? Or when you're picking fifth overall, are you really just taking the best talent? I think it's more the latter. If you start painting yourself into corners demographically when you're picking at the top of the draft, you're, you're going to make mistakes. One of the things that's always funny, like every year MLB.com has me do this story where I redraft the draft from usually 10 years ago. So, so this year I redrafted the 2010 draft, did the first round, 32 first round picks in the first round. And, and I think I always get people on Twitter who are like, I can't believe you had that guy going in the first round. But like in a typical draft, you have like, if you're lucky, five or six, maybe eight superstars. And then you have maybe a dozen or two solid players who are going to be in the lineup or, or the rotation or a key bullpen role for four or five years. And then it falls off. I mean, the last first rounder I had in my 2010 redraft was Adam Duvall. And ahead of him, I had Drew Smiley and Evan Gaddis. Like, I, I don't think anybody at the time was saying, you know, <laughs> hey, and Evan Gaddis played six years in the big leagues and hit 139 homers. And if you, again, if you were going back in time, that would make him a first-round pick. There just aren't enough talented players in the draft to say, well, we're not going to take high schoolers or we want a college right-hander, I, I, especially at the top of the draft. I think you've got to line the guys up. Now, you, you may have personal preferences and, and give college guys more weight, but you've got to line the guys up and, and just take the best guy. Now, it's interesting. I mean, this is a very college-heavy draft just because college pitching so deep and there's some good college hitters too. I mean, I think there's a good chance that, I mean, Veen theoretically could be the only high school player taken in the first nine or ten picks. But there's a lot of demand for him. I, I think the Royals are kind of 50-50 on those two guys. We've heard the Blue Jays really want Zach Veen. I mean, he's a guy who can hit for power and average. I think he probably winds up in right field rather than staying in center. But, it, but it's a really good bat. I think the Rockies would love to have Veen at 9. I know the Rangers at 14 would love him. He's not going to get close to them. But, like, Veen's, like, like clearly the, the biggest high school target for a lot of teams. Very interesting stuff. Jim Callis is a senior writer for MLB Pipeline at MLB.com. Get him on Twitter, at Jim Callis, MLB. He's been very generous with his time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Our thanks to Jim Callis for joining us. And now we turn our attention to something a little more Blue Jays-focused with friend and colleague here at Sportsnet, Shai Davidi. Colleague and friend Shai Davidi is with us. Shai, thanks for the time, as always. I was reading your setup for the Blue Jays' number five pick coming up next week, and you talked to Shane Farrell for that one, who's the Blue Jays' scouting director. And I almost, like, I had to do a double take because I thought it was a typo. 
Shane Farrell turns 31 today here on Thursday as we record this. So that like just, you know, by way of comparison, that's like the same age as a Kevin Pillar or a like Ryan Goins, Marcus Stroman. Like this guy might as well have been on the 2015, 2016 Blue Jays. And here he is running the team's draft. And I promise you the front office overseen by Mark Shapiro doesn't just, you know, hire anyone to do that. It doesn't just put anyone in that position. So I think it really says something about him that he's in this role at such a young age, Shy. Yeah, for sure. And he's been regarded in scanning circles as one of the rising stars in the game. And it's funny, you know, this guy was drafted by the Blue Jays in the 46th round in 2011. And not even a decade later, he's running the draft for them. So it's a pretty remarkable turnaround in that regard. But it's a cool story. It's a guy who his body gave up on him and ended his career prematurely. And rather than pulling the plug on baseball, he found another way into it. And he has risen through the scouting ranks remarkably quickly. Look, I mean, he comes from a very good baseball family. His dad is John Farrell, uh, the Blue Jays manager we all remember. His older brother, Jeremy, is in player development in the Chicago Cubs organization. And younger brother, Luke, is a pitcher for the Texas Rangers. So there's a good bloodline there and obviously a lot of baseball knowledge that he grew up around. And now he's getting to apply it in his own realm. It's really interesting to see, and obviously a lot of history there, a lot of connections throughout the game on many levels. What's your sense been, Shy, through talking to Shane Farrell of what it is that he brings? I mean, we aside from his, his family, aside from his history with the Blue Jays, what kind of approach do you think it is that he brings to this organization? Not to say that one person, you know, knowing the way the Blue Jays operate, it's not as the one person is going to come in and, you know, be this general leading everyone on this pathway singularly. I mean, it's obviously going to be part of a collaborative effort knowing the way the Blue Jays operate, but how does he fit within that? It's a great question. I really don't think we're going to have a good handle on that until we see how this draft plays out. And it's hard to really determine a guy's preferences based on one draft, right? Because everything is so relative to the players who are available in a given year. And so your approach one year may be vastly different the next just because of what's available to you. But if you're going to be in this position, if you're going to be in that amateur scouting director spot, you know, a lot of it is just being able to direct how information is gathered and then how that information is processed right so you're you know you, you're getting inputs from your area guys you're getting inputs from your regional and national cross checkers and then it's a matter of okay well how do we weigh this versus what the analytical guys are telling us how do we weigh this from the player development people are saying how do we weigh this versus the the financial demands and how are we going to look at that financial package in totality relative to our bonus pool. So that's really the role of the amateur scouting director these days. It's not so much, yeah, I think this is the best guy. This is who we're going with. It's putting all that together and trying to lead that. So, you know, he's worked very closely with Tony LaCava, the longtime Blue Jays executive, who's really sort of their dean and their guru. And he's he's helping him through this process. But we're going to really get a sense of what he brings and where his tolerance for risk, where his, uh, uh, you know, times where he wants to be aggressive, where all that stuff lies when the Blue Jays start making their picks. 
Well, and this draft in particular has so many unique variables when, you know, you consider it's it's his first draft as an amateur scouting director. And oh, by the way, there's a global pandemic. So none of these players have played at all in recent months. So you don't have a recent sample from them. You haven't been able to get on a plane and go and actually meet with them in person or, you know, watch how they interact with their teammates, any kind of pre-draft interview has been done over zoom which i'm sure has been a very interesting experience and also you know the blue jays have pulled in a lot of individuals from other areas of the organization to help on the draft so there's just a lot more voices involved and a lot more expertise that you're drawing on um and you look at how high the blue jays are picking and you know what type of you know the caliber of player you're able to get in the fifth spot and the you know amount of draft bonus pool like that 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 gives you to play with i mean there, there's so many variables of play here shy but the sense i almost got from reading your piece and reading farrell's comments was that he's just he's not gonna you know try to do anything too crazy here like he you know he talks about letting the draft class speak to you and kind of letting the draft come to you like it almost seems like the simple approach might be what the blue jays are thinking is best this year yeah, I mean, the the one quote that I kept coming back to and thinking about it is when he said, betting on the rule and not the exception is typically the way to approach it. And that is interesting to me. Is, I mean, we've heard them connected to Zach Veen, a, a very toolsy high school outfielder. And, you know, high school players are, you know, they, that's where there's a lot of risk, right? So, you know, at that point, how are you framing that up? And that's going to be really fascinating to see. What's compelling to me about this draft is that this is, in theory, what should be the last Blue Jays opportunity high up in the draft for the next competitive cycle, right? If and when there's a 2020 season, the expectation is that the Blue Jays should not be a team that loses something along the lines of 95 games the way they did last year, that they're much more competitive. They're in and around the 500 area, and that would leave them middle of the pack in the next draft. And then if the progress continues linearly after that, then you know they're just going to keep on drafting lower and lower. So this is the last major opportunity to add some impact to the farm system. And I think that's the dynamic to me that's particularly interesting. Do you take the big swing? Do you take the go for the risk and try to get that big reward, you know, like tools the potential high school center fielder and accept the risk inherent to that? Or do you play it a little bit safer with a, you know, college arm that, you know, maybe has a bit less upside, but has, you know, more predictability in terms of uh, what the outcome's going to be. And I think that will be very telling about where the Blue Jays are headed in the draft under Shane Farrell. As you outline in the piece, it's it's kind of walking that line between trying to find uh, you know enough upside while also not taking on unnecessary risk. You know, I, I think when you look at any team, including the Blue Jays, they're they're always trying to find ways to find extra value to be opportunistic. And under the forty round system that we're all used to, there were a lot of ways that you could do that. Whether it was spending a bit more after the tenth round or moving money around. When you look at this draft and, and the way it applies to the Blue Jays, is it basically a situation where their creativity is limited? Because, you know, Shai, as, as much as I look at this draft, I'm having trouble coming up with ways that a team could really be creative when it comes to those ways that we're used to seeing. Yeah, for sure. And 
it's funny. I, I've mentioned that same thing to a few people in the Blue Jays front office, and they've continually come back to me saying, like, you know, we can still find ways to be creative. We're, we can still find ways to adapt. And that, to me, is super, super intriguing because I just – like you, Ben, I, like I struggle to see what you're really going to do. Like, unless you're so underpaying the number five pick that, you know, you get millions more to work with in the subsequent rounds that, you know, you can buy two or three high school kids out of college in the, in the fourth and fifth rounds. I don't see where the flexibility is. And the other thing is you're only getting five guys, right? Like, you know, you, you can sign some lottery pick $20,000 players as free agents after the draft, but those are generally really low likelihood players. If you don't come out of this, especially when you're drafting number five with one or two legit guys, I mean, you're, you really shot your, yourself in the foot for the coming years, right? So that to me says you, know, you got to play it a little bit safe. But, you know, as we've seen in recent years, when the Blue Jays have tried to play it safe, there are no guarantees there. You know, you think about, you know, Logan Warmoth a couple of years ago and the tail on him is still to be determined. But, you know, that hasn't uh, gone to plan just yet. Same thing with uh, TJ Zoic. But, you know, when they've rolled the dice in the early rounds with some high school picks, you know, Jordan Groshans looks like a real potential get from the 2018 class. Adam Kloffenstein, who they, you, you know, overspent on in the third round, he could turn into something. Uh, Bo Bichette. Of course, he was the third player the Blue Jays took in the 2016 draft behind Zoic and uh, outfielder J.B. Woodman, who's out of baseball at this point. In essence, it's a bit of a crapshoot, which is what's maddening about this. And, you know, how you balance that, how you put it together, I'm not sure. And there's going to be some strategy to this. There always is. But maybe this is a year where you just say, hey, let's go traditional. Let's not get too cute. And let's just try to make sure we get something out of these five picks rather than trying to make it too fancy. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And there's, you know, there's a couple of different ways of, of looking at how you manage risk in a, in a five round draft, right? Like you think about it, if you have a James Paxton situation or, or a Brady Singer doesn't sign, well, geez, there's 20% of your draft out the window. We all know you'll, you'll get it back the year following, but you're looking to add players to your system right now so you'd better have a a good idea that the guy you're selecting is going to sign for what you're willing to pay him and there's also the risk in the sense of well maybe you take a stab on a prep guy who you're like projecting on which groshans was right rather than a more polished college athlete which there are a number of at the top of this draft so veen would kind of be that high school guy whereas the college athletes maybe offer a bit more certainty but say the the riskier guy's development doesn't pan out well now you've used the highest pick you've had in 20 years on a guy that didn't pan out for you so you know and, and this is a time when as you mentioned you're trying to enter a competitive window in the very near term. I mean, you're going to need help at, at the big league level in pretty short order. So, that, you know, when you even think about it that way, it's almost going to be impossible for the Blue Jays to completely avoid or minimize risk here. Sure. And that to me is where this quote from, from Shane Farrell was really intriguing when, you know, he said, in a lot of cases, it may be easier to take that big swing towards the back end of a draft because there's less probability when you're picking there as it is. And, you know, if I'm reading between the lines there, 
you know, that sounds like, okay, well, let's take the safer college arm in round one and know that we're putting that into our system. And then, you know, we'll take the big swings on the high school position players later on. And we've seen the Blue Jays do that in, in a number of years where, you know, it's like once you get down the ladder and you're really into the crapshoot range, right? Like if you look at just in general, Major League Baseball, the vast majority of players in the major leagues have been selected in the first and second rounds or the players who have come up through the draft and not through Latin America or international free agency have been selected in the first and second rounds. And then the numbers completely collapse from there onwards, right? So if you're going to play it safe somewhere based on those odds, you know, you're probably better off playing it safe in you know, rounds one, two, and then taking your swings beyond there. But, you know, if there's a high school player that's so compelling to you, and you think, all right, well, you know, this guy's got a chance to check all the boxes and be a legit dude. You know, I sometimes like taking the big swing, right? We see ba- baseball these days is all about, you know, taking the big swing and not playing for the single, you know, take that big swing, try to get the ball over the wall, go for the home run. You know, you don't always want to build your franchise that way, but maybe because of this opportunity, you know, I'm kind of like at number five, go big or go home, right? Like if you're just going to get a run of the mill guy at five, well, you can get a run of the mill guy at 18 the next year too. You know, go for broke at five. I think it makes sense when you are picking five because, you know, you mentioned the counter possibility of quote unquote taking a safe college arm. And I'm just looking back at the Jays history in recent years of the last few college arms that they drafted. And you've got names like TJ Zoik and John Harris and Jeff Hoffman and their combined war for those three players in the major leagues so far is in the negatives. So, I mean, that's sometimes what you get for taking the quote unquote safe pick, I guess, you know, there's a balance there and you don't want to take a, a real long shot in those spots, but there's no right answer for this. Nobody's figured out the draft. Clearly, it's it's an entirely unpredictable area. But I think that there is a lot to be said for trying to get, you know, maybe it's that outfielder, maybe it's that infielder, someone who has upside, even if it takes four or five years to realize this is a chance that, as you were saying, Shy, like the Jays aren't going to have very many times in the next few years. Yeah. And, and you know what's funny about this is that, you, you know, we're so good at second guessing, right? It's like if the Jays take a big swing and they miss, and then, you know, there's a solid, dependable college arm that goes behind them that they don't get, that they could have had, you know, three years from now, if they're short in the rotation and whoever they pick isn't panning out, we'll be like, well, they should have played it safe and taken this guy, right? I mean, that's what's sort of maddening about the draft is that you try to make the best decision in the moment, but you can't really know what the long-term implications are going to be and where the need's going to happen when you're down the road. You know, you think about, pretty sure the, the year that Chris Sale was drafted, oh no, it was maybe Michael Waka, and the Jays could have had him, but they went with, Deck McGuire instead. And, you know, Deck McGuire was the safe college pick. And, you know, Michael Walker wasn't in the same bracket, whether it was Walker or Sale, it was one of those two guys. There was a lot more risk with those two guys. And then, you know, you look back at it a few, a few years later, you're like, man, if they, t- if they take that guy, it completely changes the trajectory of everything. And, you know, that's in more ways than one. That's what's riding on this pick that's coming up for the Jays. Two or three years from now, if this one doesn't work out, it'll come back and haunt them to a degree. And so, 
there's that part of me and I do love the gunslinger uh, approach and, and going for broke. But, you know, if you're doing that all the time, it can be a sketchy way to build a franchise. So this will be a big test of sort of the franchise building. We saw the Blue Jays get a bit more aggressive in free agency out of their comfort zone this past offseason. And we'll see whether that translates into the draft a little bit in a couple of weeks. Well, the benefit of going the prep route for a club like the Blue Jays is they've significantly built out their player development system over recent seasons. When you're getting a college guy, this is a guy who's kind of been developing in his late teens and early 20s in a college program, whereas when you go the prep route, you get to put Jordan Groshans into your development program at 18, and now you got your hands on him, and you are helping mold him and groom him and helping him get better. Like, look no further than a Bo Bichette, who in the draft, a lot of evaluation evaluators are saying this swing won't work because he goes up levels and you know yeah, yeah he's interesting but like that leg kick and you know he's not gonna be able to stick at shortstop with his range the Blue Jays believed in him and went and got him in the second round paid him over slot to bring him in helped him develop worked with him on his swing let him continue to be an individual got him a hell of a lot better at shortstop and now he's their starting shortstop in in the major leagues and so far in a very young career has been a a pretty good one. So if the Blue Jays really believe in Zach Veen and think like, hey, this is a guy who, you know, he's projectable, you know, maybe he's a little raw right now, but we think we can work with him and we can help him develop to be a regular big leaguer, get him and put him in your development system and, and put on, you know, bet on that system that you've built out over recent years. And that, you know, it kind of brings me to the the next thing I want to talk about with the draft, which is after the draft and after the five rounds, when we're going to have this pool of players that can sign for $20,000 with any franchise in the big leagues. And I made the point on the podcast last year, the Blue Jays are kind of uniquely positioned to pitch those players on, hey, we've got this development staff and we've got young players that we produce into big leaguers like Bichette, like Kevin Biggio, who went from, you know, org guy to starting second baseman and an above average major league hitter. Do you think the Blue Jays are going to be active in that market shy? And, and, you know, do you kind of agree with me that they're uniquely positioned to pitch athletes on, on joining the organization? In general terms, in, under normal circumstances, I think you could certainly make that case. But I think there's two things at play. One, there's not going to be a real minor league season. What, whatever it is will be sort of the, the bare minimum to ensure that top prospects get somewhere to play this year and that there's a, an active and ready pool of players to be able to help out big league clubs if and when there's a season. So I think that's one of the things. So you don't need organization guys. So how many guys are you really going to bring in when you don't have anywhere for them to play? And then it's just a, another drain on your resources and uh, another player to, to try and figure out how you're going to, one, keep healthy amid the pandemic, and two, find a way for your people to, to develop him where you really don't have anywhere for that guy to go. So I think that's working against seeing a significant number of players signed after the draft. Two, your player development people, all the all the things that you can do. I think right now, it's who's come up with the most creative and innovative ways to help players out. That's how you appeal to guys because, again, you may not be able to go to the complex. You may not be able for an extended period to be around coaches physically or in person, that you're going to have to be doing things virtually. So what kind of supports can you offer someone if they have to stay home in Alabama or Mississippi or Canada or wherever you might be, right? That's where I think that the teams who have developed 
the best systems throughout the pandemic for player development will have an advantage. And uh, I think, you know, at this point, it's hard to compare what different teams have done. Uh, you know, everybody's to some degree playing from the same playbook, you know, Zoom calls and getting your guys out in front of people. But, you know, the Blue Jays are positioned well because they do have more resources than most in their high performance department. And if you get a player who that appeals to, that could certainly be a selling point. Yeah, and that same logic really applies to even the very top players that are coming into the system. It will be a time of uncertainty for them, and I guess a time of continued uncertainty because it's not like they're playing games right now in the way that they normally would be. So if you're the Blue Jays' first-round pick or second-round pick or third-round pick, what do you think the future holds for them in the next few months? Yeah, well, I think that you know, if you're only getting a limited number of players into your complex— Right. And, you know, the latest rules in Florida is that sports complexes like the ones the Blue Jays have can operate up to 25%, although the Blue Jays still are just letting 40 man roster guys use it right now. So, you know, eventually, if there's a bit more of a relaxation there or a bit of an expansion there, you know, you could see the first or second round guys, you know, or I mean, this if five guys, you can see all five guys getting into the system in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and I think kind of more bigger picture, we'll see something like an expanded Arizona Fall League or some type of league for prospects to play against one another because you just can't punt a year of development for them. So I think there'll be that. But for the time being, you know, guys will have the the month to sign as usual. And, you know, you're not getting guys into short season teams because there aren't going to be short season teams. Uh, and you know, we've seen the Blue Jays if, with their pitcher, college pitchers especially, be very guarded in how many innings they're throwing that first year anyways. You know, beyond s- some basics, we may not see them do very much because they may not be able to do very much this year. Shai, how do you think that teams bridge the gap between organizations that are more developmentally minded like the Toronto Blue Jays? And then we've been picking on the Oakland A's a lot this podcast, but you look at them removing the stipend that they were paying to their minor leaguers during this time, which again, we're talking $300, $400 a week, not a dramatic savings. But they have said, we're not going to give our minor leaguers that money anymore. And you have to think that hurts them a lot developmentally so you know if you are trying to organize some sort of a you know summer or fall like supercharged instructional league right or you know if you're trying to soup up the arizona fall league like do you think there could be some conflict between teams that are wanting to invest more money into their minor leaguers and more money into the developmental systems and then other teams who are like hey like we're having trouble paying the bills right now like we don't really have the amount of money to bus around our athletes or to you know field uh, you know enough players in these leagues yeah so i've had some interesting discussions on that and the way it was where someone positioned to me is that you know teams that want to do more will just do more right and then if you want to send 15 guys and another team wants to sell in five guys, well, you know, you'll mix and match and you'll do the best with it and kind of take the total numbers and then divide them up and work with whatever number you end up with. So it's fascinating because like, like we just don't know. And the Oakland A's aren't paying their rent at the Coliseum, which inexplicably Ben seems to like, uh, even though it's a dank <laughs> urine soaked hole. To be clear, to be clear, I like the Coliseum, not the A's current practices. Let's let's be very clear on that. 
I'll, I'll repeat it. The Coliseum needs to be raised to the ground immediately because it is a dank urine soaked hellhole. But not to digress too much, I really think we're just going to see teams doing what they were going to do anyways. And there'll be sort of like established minimums and the teams that want to do more will do more. And, you know, a team like the Blue Jays who have invested so much in player development and have really made it the, the center of their entire organization, I'd expect them to be aggressive on that front. Boy, it really seems like there's an opportunity here. If an owner is willing to, uh, you know, operate at a loss, not only this year, but probably next year as well, but continue to invest in their minor league system and to continue to invest in their development staff and to when baseball starts up again, maybe, you know, take on a couple contracts from teams that are looking to shed them and grab some prospects along with them. It kind of looks like there's an opportunity here for an owner to really supercharge the competitiveness of their team in a really quick way if they're willing to make the financial investment that it's going to take to do that. And then you would think the return on that would be that you are going to win on the other side of this. And and obviously winning means more money traditionally in baseball. Uh, I'm just not sure that I see any owners in the game moving towards doing something like that right now. Well, I mean, the Blue Jays, with the way that they're positioned, they have very, very minimal salary commitments for 21 and beyond. And you know, they are going to be one of the teams that, you know, if there's any sort of normalcy this offseason coming up and beyond it, you know, they're going to be in a position to probably spend more than most clubs and really use their financial clout in a way that we haven't seen them uh, do in recent years. And, you know, a little demonstration of that came last year when they when they got Hyunjin Ryu. I'll be honest, it was unexpected. I mean, we kept on hearing that the Blue Jays were in it. And, you know, it was sort of like, all right, well, I, I think when push comes to shove, I'm not sure that they'll want to go to that number. But they ultimately did go to that number. And, you know, that may bode well for them in the winters coming up because I do think that a, a lot of teams are going to be gun shy. You know, the Blue Jays just have spending room. They have capacity. You know, if they pick up Chase Anderson's option on 2021, you know, they've only got, you know, $60 million in the books. And they only have $35 million on the books in 22 and 36 and 23. And they've got nothing in 24. So they're in a better position than a lot of clubs because of the lack of commitments that they have. You know, we'll see how they end up using it. What number does Mookie Betts wear? Number 50? Think that'll look good in blue? <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> That'd be fun, though. They could use a center fielder. Mookie Betts going to get all the money in a pandemic. <laughs> Shy, we thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, obviously, read him at sports.ca. Follow him on Twitter at Shy Davidi. Looking forward to talking again soon, man. A pleasure as always, boys. Take care. Our thanks to Shai Davidi. You get him on Twitter at Shai Davidi. And our thanks again to Jim Callis, who is on Twitter at Jim Callis MLB. And our thanks to Christian Ryan, who is our producer on Twitter at Christian Ryan NS. That's going to be it for At The Layers this week. Hope you found this interesting and informative as we look ahead to the 2020 MLB draft. Ben and I will be back next week, hopefully with some further developments in the ongoing labor dispute between MLB's owners and players. We will recap where things stand and look at them from a Blue Jays perspective, as always, when we talk to you next week on At The Letters. 